I think this is so relevant because sometimes you'll hear people today say thing, that exact same thing. Like, oh, this is just a fad. This is just new. You know, this all this emphasis on classical theism and uh, retrieval and whatnot. Uh, Calvin would have been the first one to say, it may be new to you, <laughs> but actually what we are doing here is we are renewing the ancient faith itself. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I get the joy of being your host today. My name is Rodney Kurtz. I serve as an assistant professor of theology at Peterville University in Peterville, Ohio. And I get the joy of interviewing your normal host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Dr. Barrett, always a joy to be with you. How are you doing today? Oh, it's good to uh, join you again, Ronnie. I always enjoy talking to you. And uh, well, we would do this anyways, even if it wasn't recorded. So uh... it's a good, it's a good excuse. Keep writing books so that we can keep jumping on the Credo podcast and have an excuse to do a phone call from now and now and again. Yeah, I mean, people think we write books, right? Because you know we want to be authors and all that stuff. Really, we just want to have theological conversations. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons I'd like continue writing books, you know, for my own edification or whatever. But these phone calls is a good benefit. Yeah. We are jumping back. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I remember too, when you were here in Kansas City, you may remember Anselm House. It, oh, of course. I <laughs> you and some others would come over on that back deck of mine and we would have, what do we have? Like iced tea or brownies? I can't remember. And we'd read. Whatever your sweet. Elizabeth yeah, Elizabeth was have. always so accommodating, very patient to indulge me. <laughs> so what are you going to be doing? We're going to read a classical text out loud, and then we're just going to sit there and soak it up and talk about it. So those were good days. You know, when I would, I tell people all the time, even now as I'm dealing with students, that I'm actually hopefully sending you a student in the next few weeks for PhD studies. But, you know, we were working through residential versus online. And I literally used the Anselm House as an argument oh, for yeah. why people should residential education. You just don't often get to sit with friends and read classical text out loud. So appreciate you started the Anselm House. Totally missed those gatherings. But today we are not talking about Anselm. You like that transition? <laughs> we are talking instead about Calvin. Listeners, if you have been keeping up with the episodes corresponding to Dr. Barrett's newest book with Zondervan, Academic, Reformation as Renewal. There's been a few episodes already, even at the time of this recording, some of them have already been released. Dr. Barrett and I did a previous episode to this, and we were going to cover two to three chapters of the book. And really, as we hop on the phone to start recording, we realized there is simply too much theological meat here to do in one episode. So what we decided to do last time was save Calvin from the last conversation. And instead, we covered significant figures like Zwingli and uh, Melanchthon. We covered Bootser. And we decided to do Calvin on his own episode. So today, we're going to kind of zero in instead of covering multiple reformers. 
And we're going to zero in specifically on Calvin. And so Dr. Barrett, in your book, you have really two chapters. They aren't necessarily explicitly just Calvin, but he gets the kind of lion's share of treatment in those two chapters. And there is so much to cover. I mean, we could cover an entire series just on Calvin. Yeah. But I want to hone in on a couple of things that really stood out to me in those two chapters. And feel free to take us as well in the conversation if you're like, ooh, I want to talk about this. Feel free to, to add that. But a few things stuck out to me. But I want to start us off really broad before we jump into narrow aspects of Calvin's life and ministry. I want to start as broad in thinking about even the title of the book. The title of the book is Reformation as Renewal, which I love that idea. I love that thread that you sow throughout each chapter. It's really enriching as a reader. I did finish the book, by the way, so oh feel a little accomplished there. Thousand and eight pages later, I wow. have completely finished the book. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. But within Calvin, I would love to hear you reflect on that concept, the Reformation as Renewal, with thinking explicitly about Calvin's life and ministry. How is he a window into that understanding of the Reformation. Because as you know, we can think about the Reformation in many different ways, and it's not often thought of as renewal. And so how can Calvin help us there? Does that question make sense? Feel free to take that wherever you'd like. I think it's a key question, Ronnie, maybe more so in our day. I think there's a lot of confusion today, as if to be reformed is in some sense to uh, be antagonistic to uh, this idea of Catholicity or retrieval or even renewal itself. And Calvin just doesn't, is not your man then. <laughs> you can't go to him right. for that type of agenda. When you look at Calvin, take, for example, his institutes, which, I mean, Calvin wrote so much more than his institutes, but his institutes are one of those classic Reformed works that so many of our listeners will be familiar with. It's really important to read what he says at the very beginning, because here he writes an address to Francis I. Why is this so important? Well, there's a long history about hostility in France towards Protestants, and this hostility is directed towards any type of French evangelical convert or Protestant Christian, and to be just really brutally honest here, this hostility really is a hostility. It's dangerous. I mean, at one point, Calvin knows this, and so do those in Geneva. Calvin's training up pastors, but some of them he's sending back to France knowing, I may never see them again. They may be killed. They may be imprisoned. This may be it. So he knows the stakes are high, but there's something that really bothers Calvin, and he is really upset that some are conveying to Francis that these French evangelicals are sectarian, they're innovative, they're even heretical. And this is frustrating Calvin to no end. In fact, when Calvin writes to Francis, you know, who knows what Francis said initially if he had, you know, read what Calvin wrote, but you know, he may have chosen to just ignore Calvin. He may, in, in some sense, Calvin says, well, you know, if you want to just ignore me and let injustice triumph, go ahead, but you shouldn't then expect your kingdom to be prosperous. I mean, this is a, this is quite a, <laughs> for someone who's a king, this is getting right at the heart of what they care about. 
And it's so fascinating because Calvin quotes Augustine, uh, the city of God, and mm-hmm. he says, when justice is taken away, what are kingdoms but a vast banditry? Uh, so wow. Calvin's bold. He's really bold. Now, there's so much we could talk about here. Uh, Calvin, this will come out in other parts of Calvin's ministry, but Calvin's upset about how France understands the kingdom of God in relationship to the king and the state. But at, at the core of this initial address, Calvin is primarily frustrated with the charge of novelty. And in fact, he says, and let me just quote him here, he says against this charge that to be Protestant is to be novel and even heretical. He says, I do not at all doubt that the evangelical faith is new to them, but there is nothing new among us. Now, I think that summarizes so much of what Calvin thinks he's doing. He doesn't think of their faith as new. He thinks of it as, no, we are actually retrieving the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith of the church in order to bring about renewal today. And yes, I know to you it sounds new, uh, but actually it's quite ancient. I think this is so relevant because sometimes you'll hear people today say think that exact same thing, like, oh, this is just a fad. This is just new. You know, this all this emphasis on classical theism and uh, retrieval and whatnot. Uh, Calvin would have been the first one to say, it may be new to you, <laughs> but actually what we are doing here is we are renewing the ancient faith itself. And from there, Calvin begins to push back against both the papacy in Rome as well as the way it has made its way, its influence, it's had influence in France itself. And he begins to position the Reformation according to not just the doctrines we would expect in terms of orthodoxy, but even in terms of those marks of Protestantism itself, the, the pure preaching of God's Word, the lawful administration of, of the sacraments, as he calls them. Ronnie, you may want to later get into all kinds of, you know, corners of Calvin's Institutes and his theology. But I think this is, this is a window into Calvin's mind, you know, as he's thinking through what are we about? How do we present ourselves against this terrible caricature of of the Reformation as if to be Protestant is not to be Catholic? Calvin would, Bruce Gordon has this great statement in his biography of Calvin, where he says, if Calvin had heard that, which he did, but if he would have heard, you know, in person, you know, someone say to him to be Protestant is is not to be Catholic, Calvin would have been mortified by that. Yeah, I think the that notion of this may be new to you, but we are simply renewing an ancient faith, is key to really the the book in general, but specifically to Calvin and honestly to contemporary efforts at renewal and retrieval. That's just such a healthy and helpful word, especially those who typically find themselves wanting to champion Calvin, because unfortunately he can be used for really disastrous ends in kind of modern caricatures of his ministry. And I think you do a really good job of showing, actually, he might not be the guy you want him to be. (laughs) He might be the year of a different movement and one that might be a little bit more broader than you might think. And I think that's a good word. One of the things I did want to get into there, again, there's just so much in these two chapters, but you introduce, if you don't mind me just reading a couple of sentences here, this is page 722. I just want to kind of set this up. 
you talk here about, let me just read this paragraph. It's just too good. The beatific vision, therefore, is the ultimate fulfillment of Calvin's sacramental pilgrimage, because at last, those renewed into the image of Christ will enjoy the fullness of their participation in Christ as partakers of the divine nature. Until then, God has given his church living icons to shed light along the way, such as baptism, the icon of the covenant, the sacred scriptures, an icon of light for our path, the Lord's Supper, an icon of communion that nourishes faith as the Spirit raises the church into the heavenlies with Christ, and many other ceremonies in the church, which is itself a corporate icon of God's assembly. Each of these icons may be coded in an evangelical color, etc. But you talk about this notion of these living icons. Mm -hmm. And that comes in that part of your book, that comes at the heels of you discussing Calvin's removal of dead icons. Yeah, And so that part really intrigued me. And so I would just love to ask you about this kind of juxtaposition and to feel free to take it wherever you'd like. This juxtaposition between dead icons and living icons, and I'm sure that will take us into a few places that we could explore. Yeah, I can't emphasize. I I mean, this is just a few pages in in the chapters on Calvin, and goodness, it could have been a whole book itself, because there is this common caricature out there that, well, the Reformation was against the visual. It was about the audible, right? It's about the ears not the eyes. And it's it's not that there's no truth to that. Clearly, the reformers have a very strong emphasis on the preaching of the word. But even there, right, when you right. think about preaching, it's, again, it can be a caricature to think, oh, the reformers brought preaching back. <laughs> no, actually, the church was familiar with preaching. You look at some of the church fathers, John Chrysostom was an exceptional preacher. And even in the medieval period, they are familiar with preaching, though it may look different. They are familiar with preaching, sometimes inside, sometimes even outside. So the reformers are not so much returning, say, the audible where it's been lost, as they are trying to put the right emphasis and even content in the preaching of the word that they believe has been neglected or misunderstood. Now, that being the case, That brings up the bigger caricature, which is, well, if you were to walk into a Protestant church, let's just take Geneva, for example, isn't it the case that the Reformers were just completely against icons whatsoever, and they had no appreciation for, say, the visual arts, worried that some statue or relic or painting could lead to idolatry and whatnot? Well, this is actually more complicated than the character lets on because, yeah, you certainly do. I mean, look at Zurich, for example. You certainly do have moments, or even Karlstadt early on, you certainly do have those moments where there is a raging against icons. And this, of course, brings in the history of iconicism, where you have Karlstadt wanting to rush into, you know, this eagerness to tear everything down. And, well... It's complicated, though, because even in Germany, Luther is not necessarily of that mindset. Luther is more concerned about changing the heart first and foremost, and then that which is external will take care of itself. Likewise, when you come to Geneva, there can be this impression that it's just like Zurich. You know, let's just paint the walls white, and Calvin is has nothing but hatred towards icons. But this common character, I think it's been refuted. In, in, by many uh, Reformation scholars, uh, think of Randall Zachman, for example, among others, 
uh, who's demonstrated that, well, Calvin was against dead icons, but actually Calvin is very much for what Calvin himself referred to as living icons. Mm. What, what did he mean by that? Well, it's what you would expect. It's not that God has left us without some form of accommodation of himself. Calvin is known for his emphasis on God's accommodation, even in a tangible way. And so he's given us living icons, such as the water by which we baptize, the bread and the the wine which we partake, and, and by doing so, partake of Christ. And this may surprise some listeners, but Calvin goes further. When you read uh, his institutes, his commentaries, he talks about other living icons, such as creation itself, which he says is a theater of God's glory. So this idea that Calvin has, you know, he's against natural theology is just bogus. So when you read Calvin, this is a crucial living icon that displays the glory of God, his attributes, his providence, his power, and so much more. He also turns to the scriptures and sees Israel and, of course, Christ Jesus himself as a type of living icon, as he calls Christ, because here is the image, to quote Paul, the image of the invisible God. But now, Ronnie, you even mentioned another one, which is as Calvin offers these living icons by means of the word of God to the people of God, there is a pilgrimage that he expects. There is this anticipation that this is not the end itself. Actually, these are means to take us to, from the, the living icons, to take us to the living God. And here, Calvin has a place for the beatific vision, uh, which is a very scriptural belief. It's also important to add one more thing to this conversation. Some listeners might be thinking, well, goodness, if, if this is true, Calvin almost sounds a bit platonic. <laughs> and you would be right. It's not that Calvin was not vocal about his criticisms where he thought someone like Plato fell short. But at the same time, you look at his institutes, his commentary on First John, his commentary on First Peter 2, 3, for instance. Calvin believes that, yes, even though Plato got some things wrong, he understood beauty. He understood that we are meant to contemplate beauty that we are meant to ascend to that which is ultimately the good itself. This is, I can't help but share this. This is from his commentary on First Peter. He says, now it must be the case that the grace of God draws us all to himself and inflames us with the love of him by whom we obtain a real perception of it. If Plato affirms this of his beautiful, of which he saw only a shadowy idea from afar, this is much more true with regard to God. Well, Calvin sounds just like Augustine in The City of God or his Confessions, the way he describes Plato as looking at it from the mountaintop from afar, knowing that there's this beautiful out there. And Calvin says, well, guess what? I know how to get there. <laughs> uh, it's through Christ who descends to us first. Why, why is all this so important? It's key because there's a, there is a narrative out there that is, you'll see it in both academic circles and popular circles that says, well, the Reformation's the Reformation cut that cord of participation as if they're just these voluntarists and nominalists and they've severed participation in the likeness of God. But all you have to do is read Calvin to realize that's not entirely the case. Uh, Calvin does have a doctrine of participation. And yes, as he moves from the doctrine of God to soteriology, it will be refined in a certain, with, according to certain Protestant principles, but it retains uh, its Catholic substance. Um, 
And in that sense, uh, Calvin is in conversation with both uh, the Greek tradition and the way that it appropriated, say, uh, the the best of Greek uh, philosophy. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there that is worth exploring. I mean, even that quote you just read from his commentary. Yeah, you see, you can see the critique. There is a critique of Platonism in the sense that it seems to be looking at it from a shadow, but there does seem to be legitimate, substantial agreement in the sense of, like you said, there there might be a looking at a shadow, but it's still looking at the proper thing, this this mm. proper understanding, a contemplation of that which is beautiful, etc. There's just so much there. It does get into the conversation of participation. You touched on it already, but I would just love, you know, is there any more about Calvin's doctrine of participation? There's obviously theologians who have focused on this explicitly, you know, thinking of, of people like Todd Billings, etc., who yeah. have focused at length on Calvin's doctrine yeah. of participation. And I think you do a good job as well bringing the notion of participation out in the book. So I'm just wondering if there's anything else you'd like to go into yeah. there. Yeah, I, I, Todd Billings is fantastic to listeners. If you haven't read his book uh, on Calvin and gift and participation, uh, he does so much uh, hard work in the weeds to remove some of the uh, caricatures and scholarship that have mis represented the Reformation, but Calvin in particular. I, I think that sentence you just said, Todd Billings is fantastic. I found myself <laughs> saying that a lot. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Yeah, and, and listeners, you may want to pick up, he has an article called Catholic Calvin, which of course he does, he understands Calvin's not Roman Catholic, but he, again, by means of participation, he's trying to show, no, Calvin understands he's retaining a sense of Catholicity. Yeah, I, I think if I could give one example, the Lord's Supper would be a tremendous example. Here, Calvin doesn't agree with Rome on transubstantiation. He doesn't agree with Luther, but he also doesn't agree with Zwingli either. And so the question is, well, how does Calvin enter into this very vitriolic debate to enter a way forward uh, in his own mind? And I think here he capitalizes on Paul's language. You think of 1 Corinthians 10, I believe it is, where Paul says we, when we eat, we partake of the body of Christ. When we drink, we partake of the blood of Christ. Calvin moves beyond the impasse, at least I think so. And he does so with a type of application of this idea of participation. For example, he is, he doesn't, he's not patient with Rome because Rome, he, he does not think they can adequately explain the, the presence of Christ by means of a conversion of that presence into the through through a conversion of of bread and, and into body, for example, but he's also not persuaded by the Lutherans as if Christ is present by enclosing his body in the bread, and he certainly if if we had to say you know what who is Calvin more sympathetic with he would be more sympathetic with the Lutherans than Zwingli because he is he has some strong words for this for Zwingli because. He does not like the idea of merely describing the supper as a type of symbol. He's quick to qualify that so these are not empty symbols. So this is a strike at Zwingli as well. So what does Calvin do? Well, in many ways, it's quite genius, though he's not the only one. I don't want to give the impression he's the only one. There's other Reformed thinkers, some even more popular than Calvin, that are, are, are trying to understand the Lord's Supper. But Calvin is really helpful because when he comes to the supper, he says, well, 
yes, there is a presence of Christ, not in the ways that, you know, I just described, but could it be that we have left out the Holy Spirit so that these are sacraments, but if we tie the sacraments to the Spirit itself, well, then the Spirit is the way by by which we participate in Christ. He uses this beautiful language to say that the Eucharist is an outward sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences the promises of his goodwill toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. And then he says, we in turn test our piety toward him in the presence of the Lord. So there's that idea of participation and of his angels and before men. It is a testimony of divine grace toward us confirmed by an outward sign with mutual attestation of our piety toward him. And this is the pivotal point because Calvin can then say on that basis that there is an efficacy. It's not an efficacy by virtue of the sacrament itself, as Rome thought, but rather it's an efficacy of the sacrament according to the power of God's word to deliver on its promise, which can sound very Lutheran-like, but then Calvin will go a step further and say, this is why we call the, the, the Eucharist a sign and a seal, because it confirms that which it signifies. And for Calvin, then, the way that Christ then can be present is by means of this power, which is the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit lifts us up as if we're in the heavenlies itself with Christ Jesus, partaking of him, even enjoying fellowship with him. Now, there's certainly a mystery there. I don't think Calvin thinks, you know, I've solved the mystery and explained, you know, the presence of Christ in its fullness. But he does understand that, well, if we if the Lord's Supper if Christ in particular can be understood by means of this idea of participation, when equipped with the Holy Spirit, well, then we have a sign that can be the guarantee of a present reality. And in that sense, participation in the supper is, for Calvin, a participation in, in the body and blood of Christ. Yeah, that, that is such a helpful uh, kind of quick explanation there. There's so much to, doc to Calvin's doctrine of participation, and I think readers will, will kind of be confronted with that in this chapter throughout as you bring it up in a few different places. Hi, friends. This is Matthew Barrett. We're taking a break from our podcast because I have some exciting news to share with you. I am the director of the Center for Classical Theology, and on November 13th, the evening before ETS, we have our kickoff inaugural lecture. We have asked Carl Truman to give this inaugural lecture, and the title of his address is Why We Need Classical Theology Now More Than Ever. I'd love to see you there. You can register at credomag.com. If you go to Credomag, you will find a page for the Center for Classical Theology. You can read about Carl Truman. You can find out when this event will take place, but most importantly, you can find out how you can register today. Spots are limited. I look forward to seeing you this November. You do bring up another point that I wanted to get into, which is even the way you started this conversation, it, Calvin, maybe more than anyone, probably because of simply the amount he has read, hopefully, but he is, seems to be misread often. And you bring up a potential within this conversation particularly the Lord's Supper, the table, you bring up a, an idea that, you know, Calvin is often portrayed as this kind of divisive 
theologian, mm-hmm. and we've already those who often bring up his name or want to use his name in contemporary circles can do so often in a divisive way. However, while Calvin obviously drew the line where he needed to and, and was a reformer and all that entails, he actually had some significant emphasis on unity as well, which we see in the Lord's Supper. And so I'd love for you to just kind of talk about that, maybe trying to take down a little bit this misnomer of Calvin being, you know, just divisive. What would you say to that idea? Yeah, it's really true, Ronnie. Calvin is often portrayed as this extremely stubborn, cold, divisive individual. Sometimes people turn to predestination to say, oh, here's proof. Or his controversies with the Bolsec or the Servetus in particular. I, you know, I don't want to paint Calvin. I, I think this is a bad way to approach history as if, well, uh, in order for Calvin to help us at all, he must be, you know, without blemish. Now, clearly, he's a man. <laughs> and history, history is more complicated than merely good guys and bad guys. It is. That's a terrible approach to history. And and I'm I'm glad you said that, Ronnie, because if you approach history that way, then eventually you find yourself in a room with a few others, and eventually just by yourself. And that's right. Calvin's aware of this. Uh, he looks at the radicals and he thinks this is where you're headed. Yeah, you'll split from us and eventually you'll split from each other and then from each other again until there's no one left but you. So Calvin is not even of that mindset himself. We shouldn't treat Calvin that way either. He clearly has his blemishes. Could he be impatient? Absolutely. Could he have a temper? Yes. Are there times when we might look back and think his treatment of certain discipline cases in, church, in, in the church and Genevan society mm-hmm. were were too harsh. I, no no doubt. At the same time, though, if that's the only picture we have of Calvin, then we miss out on the fullness of the man. Because at other points, Calvin is sometimes traveling to the point where it hurts his health. He's traveling across Europe because he so wants to see unity. He so wants to see this retrieval of the Catholic faith and its Reformation portrayal he he so wants to see the reformers united and and he wants to see a common a common united front he doesn't get it in the end though in geneva by the end of his life he does have certain victories and triumphs that bring him close but internationally this side of calvin's forgotten even though he it, it doesn't bring him the success he wants in the end i think the 1540s are a great example of this you know just to throw a book out there if Listeners are like, you know, I've, I've read Calvin's Institutes, but maybe you haven't read one of, one of Calvin's other works, which is uh, his book on the necessity of reforming the church uh, from yes. 1544. Uh, here he, he presents it uh, on this uh, international stage in one sense. I don't want to overplay that, but it, it really is. And Calvin calls for unity between the reformers. Because, and he's aware of this, he knows he's been accused of rash and impious innovation. And I'm quoting from him there. And, you know, given what we said about Francis, well, you can imagine how much this upset, upsets Calvin. And so he's addressing Charles V in this case. <laughs> Calvin, and to quote him here, this is the shortest quote you'll ever hear from Calvin. His response is literally, what with an exclamation point 
<laughs> so, yeah, Calvin's temper could work against him at times. At this point, though, I think it's working for him because he's enraged by this. How can they say this after everything I've done? How can they say this? Now, he goes on and he says, yes, clearly we're against the papacy and some of its claims, you know, about super arrogation and the saints and purgatory and, and so much more. But then he's really strategic. He quotes Augustine, right, to say, okay, if you don't think we're Catholic enough, let me just quote Augustine for you, because he thinks Augustine amplifies what he's after, this Catholicity. And he says, Augustine said, no martyr's blood has been shed for the remission of sins. This was the work of Christ alone. And in this work, he has bestowed not a thing which we should imitate, but one we should gratefully receive. To put it just very bluntly, this is Solus. This is Solus Christus, right? This is Christ mm -hmm. alone. And Calvin holds it up and says, this isn't an innovation, but rather this is a belief of the church Catholic. And here is my friend Augustine, the church father, to give you proof. Why is Calvin, this is a very heated moment for Calvin, but why is Calvin entering into this debate? Well, Calvin is laboring to show not, yes, we stand against the papacy for these reasons, but in doing so, we are linking arms as reformers to present a unified front around a Catholicity that goes deeper and is wider than Rome will allow. And in that sense, Calvin throughout the 1540s can write many other works that build on that foundation. In fact, when you look at the 1540s, isn't it interesting? 1544, that's the same year Luther releases his short confession. And yes, here you have this, you know, uh, pretty vicious debate. But here... In the midst of the 1540s, Luther is writing as well, and Calvin is writing as well. And Calvin, in a, in a series of letters, we don't have time to go into them, but Calvin becomes this mediator, interestingly enough, almost like a Melanchthon, but from Geneva, a mediator mm. who's trying to settle these international disputes between the reformers. And he's writing letters to, say, Heinrich Bullinger, in light of some of Luther's uh, anger. He doesn't, he doesn't blame uh, some of, you know, Luther's followers for being upset, but uh, he wants to mediate this debate so that the Reformers actually have a Catholicity that they can present in the end, whether it's around the Lord's Supper or any number of other doctrines. So this is a side of Calvin I think we're not used to seeing, and it's a side to Calvin that I actually think is, it gives us a more balanced picture, and it tells us a little bit more about what Calvin thought it meant to be Protestant and for him, what it meant to be Catholic. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with, with what you just said there. One of the things, and this is, we'll kind of end the episode here. I think it's a worthwhile place to end. One of the things I think would help, you know, not totally reframe the way people think about Calvin, but maybe help bolster a side of Calvin's life and ministry that is downplayed, which is his pastoral role. Hmm. So I kind of have a two-part for you, Dr. Barrett, trying to yeah. kind of finish out here. We are, this episode is going to become a, reader's going to have to keep a, a notepad next to them with the amount of books <laughs> we're recommending. But I remember reading in my MDiv, Scott manages Calvin's oh, yeah. company of pastors. Yeah, very with good. With OUP. And thinking, 
this is outstanding. How come yeah. this is not the, the, the Calvin that I've been taught? It was the first time I re rethink, maybe I don't know Calvin at all. And that book paired with your book would be exceptional readings. You treat the company of pastors quite a few times yeah. throughout the couple of chapters, which I think is an important part of Calvin's ministry. So here's the two-part question. One, maybe help us walk through and understand the Calvin company of pastors. Feel free to be as long or short there as you want to. And then a really practical way to end this episode, which is simply this. What, what are we missing if we miss Calvin? Or maybe a better way to ask it is, how could regular church pastors, regular church members really benefit, have their souls stirred by taking a deep dive into this reformer known as John Calvin? Goodness. Well, you're exactly right. Scott's book is another outstanding resource. And since he, he endorsed my book, I felt like I needed to interact with it, right? <laughs> no, that wasn't, that wasn't the reason. Of course, like you, Ronnie, I had read Scott's book before and what, goodness, what a gem. And I, I engage with some of his insights, though. I mean, really, if, if you read my book and you see Scott in the footnotes, you really need to go read his book to get the full picture. But to your point, and, you know, to Scott's credit, he brings out another side of the Reformation that I don't think we're used to seeing, but we should, we really should. And that is the pastoral side. Uh, how does Calvin, for example, implement reform or his understanding of Catholicity? How does he actually implement that in uh, the training of pastors the discipline of and discipleship of the church. Well, you may remember there's a long story here because Calvin, we don't have time to get into it, but Calvin is uh, kicked out early on. This is early and, and Calvin is exiled and he swears, I'll never go back there. I, he, at one point he says, I, I'd rather be crucified <laughs> and go back to yeah. Geneva. So the... <laughs> I think the Lord does have a sense of humor <laughs> with yeah, Calvin's pain. <laughs> but the part of the reason, again, it's complicated. It has to do with Calvin's understanding of what is a minister and what kind of authority does the minister have that the magistrate should not interfere with. And um, there's a disagreement there. There's this, you know, famous scene where uh, Calvin says, you know, if someone's if they are going, if they are going to approach the Lord's table, they must swear an oath to the the confession, so that we have an understanding here. And the magistrates won't tolerate this. There's all kinds of reasons, and even some speculations as to why. Is it because Calvin's not actually a citizen? Is it because of his understanding of the confession? Is it for other political reasons about Calvin's two kingdoms and the relationship between the minister and the magistrate? undermining their authority and power. You know, there's We could get into all of those things. But the point I want to bring out is here's Calvin standing in front of the table, right? He's not going to let anyone touch the bread and the wine unless this happens. It does not end well with him. He goes to Strasbourg and learns from Martin Bootser. I think that's helpful. Bootser teaches him how to be a pastor. It's not that Calvin was wrong necessarily, but how he's going about it is, well, it, it has more the spirit of Pharrell than maybe Bootser is comfortable with. And so there's some past I like that. Duh. Yeah, there's some pastoral training that's happening. You have to remember Calvin didn't have the theological education that may maybe some of our listeners are getting today by going to seminary. So there's some quick pastoral training that's taking place as he's learning from Martin Bootser. But when he comes back, long story short, when he comes back, 
there are changes that have that, that Calvin says these changes have to at least start. Otherwise, I'm not coming back. And when he comes back, there's several things that are implemented, several institutional markers, we could call them. And one is the consistory. Now, I know that even that word, people think, oh, goodness, here we go. You know, here's the dark side <laughs> of Calvin. But you have to remember what their goal was. You know, however imperfect they, they actually exercise this goal, their goal was mediation. They tried to mediate in the life of the church for the sake of resolving and even reconciling. And so it served a really important purpose. They are trying at the same time to safeguard. I think sometimes this is lost. You know, the reformers, we think of, oh, they were just accused of theological novelty. Actually, for Rome, they thought that actually was accompanied by ungodliness. And so the consistory is trying to safeguard Calvin's Reformation from accusations of immorality. You could see how important that would be. And their primary goal is it's not retributive. It is re restorative, as they are uh, attempting at least. It, it's not this image of, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. I know that sometimes it can appear that way. Um, but really, the, it is a restorative goal that they have in mind. But that's not the only thing Calvin uh, is concerned is a priority. Uh, and so here you have in Geneva these pastors or future in future pastors gathering together, usually on, say, a Friday morning, and they are pastors, doctors, but they're all gathering because Calvin is setting a model before them. They're looking to hear one of their own teach from the scriptures, to offer feedback from other, to get feedback from other ministers, for example. Candidates are selected. And here, a Protestant paradigm is underway as they're called to the ministry under the word. In fact, it's really rigorous. They undergo examination, and that occurs with both their character and their preaching. They're assessed. There's a pastoral charge. This, what was called the small council got involved. To, uh, these are the, the people that are the elected candidates' perception of the magistrates is, is evaluated by this small council. And then you have an announcement to the congregation as well as an installment. And, and then they also are participating in this company of pastors in which the new minister joins them and actually begins to contribute to the refinement of the preaching of the word or uh, discipleship and discipline. The last thing I'll say is this company of pastors is so important because here, you know, in a Protestant sense, they understand Christ is the head of the church, but he governs this church by means, and he governs them the church by means of his word and by means of his ministers. And so if we don't take this seriously, if we invert this hierarchy as they thought Rome had, then we end up being self-centered rather than Christ-centered. And so if you had to put it in a word, I would say a Christ-centeredness is really at the core of Calvin's Catholicity and what he thinks that means for ministry in Geneva. You see this in the 1530s, the 1540s with his editions of the Institutes, but you also see it practically as truly a source for the minister's validation. And that is key, because in the 1540s, there has to be some mechanism for confirmation by the congregation and the ministers alike and yes, it's tricky because Calvin does not always like how the type of authority or power the magistrates may have. He's trying to push that out to a certain extent. But at the same time, I think what it tells us is Calvin is really serious about implementing this Catholicity 
in a pastoral way. And that, I think, sets the Reformation apart. It's not, as sometimes people think, it's not merely a cognitive commitment, but actually they see this as cultivating a Catholicity both in the church universal and by means of the ministers and the word in the church visible in very tangible ways. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's huge. And that that pastoral side of Calvin that you see come out with the, the company of pastors is just so easy to forget. And I you know, I remember even talking with you, Dr. Bear, uh, early on when you got to Kansas City. Uh, I remember I remember there being a group of students uh, who had kind of accidentally mentioned to you that they made it through their education without reading the institutes. And I remember the look on your face, just <laughs> thinking that the look was clearly, well, that's never going to happen again. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that because what you get when you crack open the institutes, which can be a daunting book yeah. for, you know, an everyday church member or maybe a new pastor, but man, the theology of the Holy Spirit you're confronted with, the wisdom of what it means to know God and know yourself is amazing. Calvin, you've already alluded to it. Calvin's list being God, as it were, who lists yeah. to us in a conversation. I mean, there is just so much pastoral gold in actually reading the primary material. Yeah. And so I think a lot of that is brought out in your book. Obviously, your book is secondary material, but it's secondary material worth, you know, spending time with to point you to those really wonderful, so soul-stirring places of primary material one last one last thing just because you know we didn't expect this episode to be a running commentary on primary and secondary sources i don't think we would ever forgive ourselves since we've mentioned so many secondary sources if we didn't mention bruce gordon's biography of calvin you work with gordon quite a bit in the book and oh, so yes. add that to the list read you know on top of buildings and manage and <laughs> gordon now barrett reformation as renewal read the institutes necessary reformation those kinds of primary materials. And Dr. Baird, thank you so much for taking the time. This was such a fun, it's hard to think of a better way to spend a Wednesday afternoon than talking for an hour about Calvin's life and legacy with you. So I appreciate the time. Couldn't agree more, Ronnie. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Listeners, again, we've been talking about two to three chapters in Reformation as Renewal, which is a book at the time of this recording, it got to be getting close to getting out. So you can pick it up anywhere books are sold from Donovan Academic. I can officially say that I have completed the book, and I really think you will be blessed by doing the same. So thank you for listening, and we will catch you on the next episode of the Credo Podcast. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.